you can see the difference in in body and in emotion in, in faces even when when people are in a confidence zone and when people are not uh, and when they're learning but there was a desire from everybody involved to push and to um to go into zones where they're not comfortable and mm-hmm. i think that's what makes a difference um, because otherwise it's just miserable uh, mm-hmm. it's scary and it's not pleasant and it's not comfortable yeah you um, don't want to be there so you don't want to be there <laughs> but everybody wanted to be there and everybody wanted to be taken out of their comfort zone which, mm-hmm. and that, that's what made it a really great expedition Transylvania Mountain Festival, I am Anka Berlo and this is the summer edition of the podcast recorded in Chamonix. We are talking today with Alex Buiz, a professional adventure photographer who has worked in Chamonix for a decade. He has climbed, skied and flown all over the Mont Blanc range. His work is currently divided between adventure and humanitarian development projects. Whether it is a runner focusing before an Olympic race, a refugee becoming the first of her community to receive a university degree, or a climber looking up at the mountain he will measure himself against, emotions are the common thread, human and universal. Telling people's stories with earnestness and honesty is what Alex strives to do every time he picks up a camera. Photography has given him many opportunities to live unique experiences, and highlights include sailing an expedition yacht around Cape Horn, being invited to an Ethiopian coffee ceremony in Dabab refugee camp, photographing Usain Bolt at the Olympics, skiing to the North Pole, naming three small mountains in Greenland, adventure racing through Tierra del Fuego, climbing on K2 and getting winched, on purpose, from a rescue helicopter at night. Alex is currently based in the Alpine Mecca of Chamonix and is available for assignments in both Europe and North America. With current restrictions, he remains currently in France and we feel lucky to have him as a guest at the Transylvania Mountain Festival podcast. Welcome to the Transylvania Mountain Festival podcast, Alex. Thank you so much for having me. Can you tell us a bit how your uh, photography career started and your passion for photography? My interest in photography started very late in life. Um, I didn't take any pictures until I was in my 20s. And photography and climbing or outdoor adventures kind of came hand in hand and I started having an interest in both at the same time. And then it really fed each other in a really interesting way in that I was motivated to take a photography so I could better document the amazing things I was seeing when I started climbing and, and hiking. And then that also motivated me to do more climbing so I could get to more exotic places and get better photos. Uh, and the, the two kept feeding each other. And then I have been a professional photographer now for about 10 years. In the most ironic of ways, I took up climbing when I was a student, PhD student in Denmark, in Copenhagen which is even flatter than the Netherlands. Um, so it's about the worst possible place to take up rock climbing. But as a consequence, there was a very small but very, very active climbing club in Copenhagen. And everybody was super dedicated. You would drive four or five hours to Sweden, on the west coast of Sweden, to go climbing for just a few hours to do one or two rounds. Uh, and so the only people who were willing to do that uh, were very, very dedicated. Uh, and that really inspired me. And then because I have been coming to Chamonix since I was a little kid, uh, I grew up in Lyon, not doing anything climbing. I had never gone up Pegu du Midi. But 
there was always this idea that the, those beautiful mountains are there and I really want to go explore them. So then the rock climbing combined with uh, that desire to, to go into the bigger mountains and that's how I took up mountaineering and alpine climbing and that's still, even though I do all of those sports, that still remains my first primary love, I guess, in the outdoors. Uh, but your first, uh, maybe, your first love was uh, maybe academic? <laughs> uh, I wouldn't call it a love, no. Uh, I, did, uh, I did a PhD in computer science, in theoretical computer science, it's really math, um, for 10 years. Uh, so I spent 10 years at university. That's a bit of an investment of That's time, so there must have been a real interest in it. There was an interest <laughs> and it was just opportunities presented themselves and I did not... I, I felt like I didn't really have an alternative or that there was a path that was offered to me, so I might as well take it. Um, but the truth is I was really miserable through most of the PhD. I really didn't like it very much and mm -hmm. I started having very different interests. Uh, and I did complete the studies in that I wrote a dissertation and handed it in. But they decided, the committee decided not to... Um, and decided that there were major issues with uh, my dissertation and that I would need another six months or so of work to fix. Uh, and then by that time, I was trying to become a photographer and I had moved back to Chamonix from Denmark. And I was like, yeah, no, not happening. Uh, I don't care enough about the degree and I have no desire to stay in that uh, in that field. So mm -hmm. I just walked away. But do you, do you think these studies have given you a certain rigor, a sort of uh, develop your analytical mind, which I think is a very good balance for somebody who's creative? Yeah, absolutely. Working with a scientific method and, and being, as you said, very analytical is definitely an asset. And it's something that's helping me also now when I, I go on some bigger commercial shoots. Uh, and it requires a lot of planning and a lot of pre-production. That's something being able to be super rigorous uh, is definitely helpful. Um, but I can't help but think that they, I could have gotten the same skills without spending 10 years working <laughs> on them. <laughs> At the same time, back when I started those studies, I did not have that interest in photography and I did not have that interest in, in the outdoors. So I don't know what else I would have done. Mm -hmm. um, so in a way, it, was, it also allowed me to be where I am today, um, just mm -hmm. by uh, giving me something to do while I developed those other interests. I mean, anyways, a lot of people who have developed certain skills later in life, who had different careers as stepping stones to something who that has more significance to them. So I think uh, maybe the myth of finding something, the thing you love when you're 20, it's yes. a bit of a myth. And maybe you should give yourself more time to explore what you really like and exactly. then to yeah. really be aligned with your... Mm -hmm. Exactly. I had profession. to make the decision of going into science and academia and research. Uh, when I finished high school, I was 16 years old. I had no idea about anything in life, really. <laughs> I just knew I kind of liked math in school. And I'm <laughs> like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to go study math. Um, <laughs> it's also interesting to see how many... Um, the, the connection between academia, especially sciences, and climbing in the outdoors... And you see, I find a lot of people who are really into alpine climbing, the day job is to be a physicist, or to be a researcher in, in some uh, in some way. So I think there's a connection there. I don't know if that's been studied or not, but I think the people, mm -hmm. the, the climbing and the mountains appeal to the same kind of people, I think. Maybe they push intellectually and then they need to balance this. It could be, yeah. It's I, just I don't a, really just know. Just a supposition. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. So what does um, adventure mean to you? Because um, you're a photographer, an adventure photographer. Among other things, I am. I, and I'm primarily known as an adventure photographer, yes. Um, so to me, adventure is being in a place and doing something that is not... Uh, that can go wrong, I guess is uh, an easy way of saying it. Uh, when you know what the plan is, but things very well might not go according to plan and you might end up having to make decisions on the fly that um, can have a lot of repercussions. Doing that in serious terrain, it, it is becoming, in my opinion, a little bit harder to have true adventures in places like the Alps because there are so many things that ensure that um, if something goes wrong, then you can call PJSM and get a helicopter ride. Or you have mountain huts that you can almost always go. Within a few hours, You anywhere in the Alps, you have a, a mountain hut uh, that you can at least find shelter in. Um, which does not mean that people don't have adventures. They do all the time here. Mm. But it's when I've gone to further away places and, and wilder places that I've found things that I would consider more adventurous. When I've gone on expeditions in Patagonia and knowing that it's a, pitch, a rock climbing pitch that I wouldn't think twice of trying here in Chamonix because I know, well, if I fall and worst case scenario, if I break an ankle, well, you know, uh, I'm not far from the lift and if it's really bad, then I can just call for rescue. And I know if that happens in Patagonia, even just a busted ankle, that can be extremely serious. That can mean having to walk all the way back to town, which takes 18 hours. Or that can mean being stuck on the wall while somebody runs back to town to try and get brown up other climbers to come get you. It, everything becomes so much more serious. Um, and then also going to places that don't necessarily have maps or don't have good maps. So you don't really know where you're going, but you're just trying and going there anyway. Um, especially in Patagonia. That to me has uh, really been more about adventure. But what I love is that you can find that on a variety of scales, you can get the really crazy stuff, go on an expedition, um, almost map-making expedition, to uh, Cordillera Darwin in Patagonia. Um, or you can do the same in um, in Mont Blanc, if on, on a much, much smaller scale, but people can still have great adventures, even on a normal route of Mont Blanc. Um, so, yeah, that's the, the variety of scales that you can have mm -hmm. adventures in that is also really fascinating to me mm -hmm. and something, something I'm trying to capture also in my photography. How do you become an adventure photographer? When do you start? So you like photography, you like going in the mountains. Mm -hmm. You need a crew, unless you go solo, which mm -hmm. is not advisable from the beginning. How do you do that? Um... Well, to become an adventure photographer, you don't need a degree. You don't need, nobody cares about the degree. You just need somebody to like what you're doing enough to give you money for it, uh, basically. And that, doing that, you do need to have a pretty extensive portfolio that really demonstrates to potential clients that you can do, uh, you can create the images that they need on a consistent basis. Mm -hmm. um, and that's that to me is the well not to me but that is the biggest the biggest thing especially now that is so many people who want to be adventure photographers so there's a lot of competition and the budgets especially in the other world just keep decreasing mm -hmm. um, 
a photo shoot is a big investment from a, a client's point of view. It will be a big risk for them to uh, to hire a photographer. So they need to make sure that the photographer can really deliver. First and most important thing, I think, is showing that consistency. And that goes through um, being a really extensive portfolio. Because mm. if all you have is a few potentially really great images, but just a few of them, well, anybody who's who spends enough time in the mountains is going to get lucky. As long as you can operate a camera on a pretty decently, just spend 20 years climbing, you're going to get pretty great images. Mm -hmm. But you need to demonstrate that on a given day, uh, on a given climb, I have gotten 15, 20 pretty solid images. And that's what clients are going to want to see. That's what's going to make the difference. So as the first part of the question, which is really how do you start, uh, I think you you just go out a lot with mm -hmm. people and with your friends and you try to photograph them as much as possible <laughs> and you try to strike a, a balance between, you know, just doing photography and annoying everybody because you stop every two minutes um, and not taking any pictures. Um, and in my experience, most people are more than happy to have great images of themselves, especially if they're on adventures that they found meaningful. Uh, so it's not a very hard sell, but you still need to make the effort of carrying the camera and then stopping and actually taking the pictures. Um, mm. But it does come down to just going out a whole lot. What sports do you practice? Everything I photograph except for base jumping, pretty much. I try... I'm pretty mediocre at a lot of them, um, but I'm at least I have a basic level of proficiency that I can be safe. Um, otherwise, pretty much any adventure sport. Um, my main sports would be alpine climbing and paragliding. Uh, I am a very mediocre mountain biker. Um, like, I walk a lot next to my <laughs> bike. I'm a pretty decent skier. I trail run a little bit, um, rock climb, ice climb. I surf terribly but I surf uh, I can sail pretty decently mm -hmm. so I think it's really important to practice uh, at least to a basic level most of the sports that that you want to be shooting because it helps you understand the athletes yes. your subjects what yes. they're doing the their gestures exactly anticipating movement is really important understanding what is relevant and what is not um, understanding what's extraordinary and what is really not I think is super important and also simply letting you be in the same place as the athletes while being safe and while um, not having to focus so much on the activity itself that you can save a small portion of your brain to actually think about photography exactly because when you're pushing to the max exactly. you, 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 you cannot yeah. stay if you, you cannot <laughs> stop to take pictures yes <laughs> You can, uh, if you take a photographer from Paris and you put him in an office of Grand Jorasse from a helicopter, he doesn't even have to climb, but he'll be so freaked out by the environment and by not understanding the environment that he probably won't be able to get good images. Mm -hmm. um, whereas if it's somebody who has been alpine climbing a lot, they'll be like, oh, yeah, okay, it's an extreme climb, but I know how to do it. Uh, I know how to, how to operate in that kind of environment. So when did you participate in your first uh, expedition as a resident photographer? The very first one that I did officially, that would be before I was even a full-time professional photographer, and it would have been in Nepal in 2010, where we climbed, uh, it was a trekking and, and uh, climbing some trekking peaks. Uh, we did Island Peak and Pokalde and uh, the last one, 
I can't show the last one we climbed. Um, but so yeah, it was a month of uh, of trekking and uh, and very easy climbing around uh, Everest Base Camp. Uh, and it was a really a lot of fun and a great learning experience for me. And it's also interesting to come back to those images and to see how much my eye has changed and how much I would focus on different things now, mm -hmm. uh, 10 years later, that I would have, uh, that I did at the time. But yeah, it was a great experience. And, and following expeditions is something that I really love doing, that I do less so now because I have a little two-year-old. Being gone for a month at a time or weeks at a time is a lot harder. But yeah, expeditions are, are pretty unique. What do you like about expeditions? I like that it takes you to a completely different place. It's, uh, I mean, physically, physical? physically, obviously, but also mentally, uh, in terms of what you expect, what life is like on an expedition is so completely different. I remember, so that first expedition in 2010, after a month, it was normal that every day you wake up in a tea house, you have breakfast, and then you, you go and you hike, or you go and you climb something. Like that's that's what life is. That's what normal is. Normal that's is the highlight really, of the day. <laughs> it's the highlight. Where do also, I walk today? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the normal is to to go walking, and time has a different meaning as well. Um, even when you spend weeks at base camp on an expedition and trying to wait for the right conditions and being climatized enough, it's um, well, it sucks. It's very boring, uh, but it also lets you slow down. It lets you. Uh, it lets me catch up on reading. It lets me catch up on thinking on a number of things that normally I'm just like checking email, checking Instagram, um, always having to produce something, always having to send a newsletter, always having to do stuff, do stuff, do stuff. Mm -hmm. And on an expedition, everything, all of that is, most of that is removed. Because of lack of technology until well, now. Because maybe if we it, had the technology, we would be more connected. changing. Uh, of course, yes. And like, you go to a race base camp, you have 4G. But still, even, even with the technology, it's not just the technology. It's also the fact that you go to a place with a certain goal. Like mm -hmm. everything that matters is climbing a mountain and coming back safely. Everything you do is geared towards that goal. Whereas when you're home, when you're just kind of running around... You have a thousand goals. You have a thousand things you want to achieve in any given day. When you're on an expedition, you mm -hmm. have one thing. And that, that to me, is really fascinating. That narrows down and brings a bit of a focus it to does. life. And I think it's, <laughs> it's, the existence. it's the same when I go climbing, when I go into the mountains. The goal, it doesn't matter that, you know, you're late on your bills or uh, you there's a thousand emails you haven't replied to. When you're in the mountains, what does matter is, do I go to the right of that rock? Do I go to the left of that rock? Do I turn around because I'm too late? Do I not? Is the snow refrozen enough? Like those very simple decisions are what matters. It, it refocuses what matters. And that, that I really find fascinating. Which was your first sailing expedition? So my first sailing expedition was in January 2016 and it was in Patagonia. Um, I had been climbing with a friend for, well, trying to climb for a with a friend for about a month And then I spent two weeks on, a, on an expedition yacht. Uh, we sailed around Cape Horn and then we sailed in the Beagle Channel. And that's a lot more sheltered. And would stop every now and then and go hiking, go explore, uh, which was a really, really fun expedition. What was a bit disappointing is we didn't actually sail that much. We mm -hmm. used the engine most of the time, except for a few, a few sections. But then I did, two years later in 2018... I did uh, an actual sailing uh, from Scotland to the Lofoten Islands in Norway, the Ocean Peak Expedition. 
And this one was, we did use the engine a little bit when there was no wind whatsoever, but otherwise it was very much sailing, actual sailing. I see that the expedition was organized by three friends, Marta, Benoit and Christophe, mm -hmm. who decided to get together and combine their respective expertise, yes. sailing, climbing and special education. Mm -hmm. They bought a 16-meter Lévrier de Mer sailboat, Trifon, mm -hmm. and embarked on a series of ambitious expeditions to the Arctic while taking in artists and eventually unprivileged youths. Yeah. So how... Uh, Well, What was the idea? The idea, <laughs> well, so as you just said, so Christophe Dumaret, who some of your listeners may know, a very famous guide and climber. And then uh, Benoit is a, a climbing gym owner, but also a big sailor. And Marta is a very, very strong sailor. They, both Benoit and Marta have sailed solo across the Atlantic. Um, they decided to try and find a project that would gather their respective experiences and kind of introduce each other to their, their own worlds. Um, and so, again, as you said, they bought, a, they bought a boat. And then I was invited as the resident photographer on the first, the very first expedition, which was... Uh, so the boat is based in La Rochelle, in, on the west of France, and they sailed it from La Rochelle to Edinburgh in Scotland. And then that's where I joined the expedition with a few other people. There was a journalist, there was a, a filmmaker, um, another mountain guide. And we sailed across the North Sea to the Lofoten. And then in the Lofoten, we climbed a number of uh, a number of mountains. But we made some first uh, repetition of mm -hmm. routes and just explored and had fun with uh, with that environment, uh, with that really wild place that the, the Lofoten are or can be in, in some parts of it. And it was really fascinating to see the sailors, well, teach to everybody, including Christophe and myself, who had very limited experience with sailing. So teach us how to sail and, and really actually sail in, in rough conditions, having the shifts and, and all, of, all of that. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't a PG-13 version where um, you can do stuff, but then if you screw it up, you know, that everything stops and then you can go home in a nice hotel and be warm. And mm -hmm. uh, it was like, yeah, you actually have to do it. It and was a real adventure. It was a real adventure, yes. And to them, to Marta and to Benoit, it, it, you know, it was it was fun, but it wasn't extreme in the least. To us, it was so crazy to be at the helm of a boat at 2 a.m., uh, pretty much by ourselves. We knew that if something bad happens, then yeah, we can. We can always go wake up the experienced people and they can mm -hmm. hopefully help us. But we had the entire responsibility of the boat. For us, it was very much an adventure. And then mm -hmm. as soon as we got to land and we got into vertical rock climbing environment or mountain climbing, then things got reversed. And Marta, who was so confident on the water, now was really learning about rock climbing and basic rock climbing stuff. You can see her expressions in the, yeah. on your the, website. Yes, definitely. You can see the difference in, in body and in emotion, in, in faces even, when, when people are in a confidence zone and when people are not. Uh, and when they're learning but there was a desire from everybody involved to push and to um to go into zones where they're not comfortable and mm -hmm. i think that's what makes a difference um, because otherwise it's just miserable uh, mm -hmm. it's scary and it's not pleasant and it's not comfortable and um, you don't want to be there so you don't want to be there <laughs> but everybody wanted to be there and everybody wanted to be taken out of their comfort zone which, mm -hmm. and that, that's what made it a really great expedition 
You also do other type of assignments. Mm -hmm. And while uh, at the Rio Olympics in August 2016, as an accredited photographer shooting for a few specialized French magazine, you made the most of the time spent there and also worked for a personal long-term project on a team of refugee athletes. Why was this important for you? I also do humanitarian photography, and I think it's really important to me, at least, to have those two different domains that are completely disconnected. I find that it really helps my adventure photography to be doing something completely different uh, and vice versa and bring a more adventure, more commercial look into humanitarian photography. So in the particular case of the Rio Olympics, I had been accredited for a while now because usually you have to do that like two years in advance. And then my girlfriend then, wife now, uh, comes from the humanitarian world and she worked for UNHCR, for the refugee agency of the UN, for a long time. So she had connections there and she, she lived in Kenya for a really long time. And uh, we heard that they were going to have for the first time a refugee team. Um, and so refugees who would be competing as refugees, representing the nation of refugees. That's not really a thing under the Olympic flag. And that's something that we found absolutely fascinating, especially now that we hear so many things about refugees and almost always in a negative light. Mm -hmm. um, to have something that's really celebrating how talented many of them are and that's so completely positive about refugees. Mm -hmm. And it's not about, oh, look at those poor people in those refugee camps or we need to bring education to them or any of that. It's like those people are amazing athletes and they can compete mm -hmm. on a world stage. So that's what we really found fascinating. We combined, in a way, our two domains, again, in a way, like the ocean big thing, um, with my wife, who had the humanitarian expertise, and I, who had the uh, the sports and the photography perspective. And before the games, we spent a, a bit of time in Kenya, meeting them, meeting all the people who from South Sudan, but um, before the selection, they also had some from uh, Somalia, from Ethiopia. Meeting them who were training, who were hoping to be selected to go to the Games, and then going to the refugee camps where a lot of them had grown up, uh, meeting their families, seeing how they had grown up, what life was like for them in those refugee camps. And then at Rio, spending time with them while they were competing, and then afterwards coming back to Kenya and seeing how the Games had changed their lives and what they were doing next, uh, what their goals were for the future. So that was really interesting, really fascinating project to do something that's so long-term, to do something that follows people through um, an extended period of time and through something as unique as the Olympic Games, and to do a project that, uh, that really had uh, so much potential impact. Um, and hoping to, I was hoping to keep doing that through Tokyo that would have been supposed to happen right now. Um, that I was also accredited for as a um, photographer for the Sport Climbing Federation. Mm -hmm. And I was hoping to be able to still follow some of the refugee athletes, the new team that's mm -hmm. coming. So I'm hoping to do that next year, 2021. So this is your, your continuous humanitarian project. Are you involved in any other? I'm hired by uh, NGOs and UN agencies to, to go document some of their programs. I was most recently in December of last year in Kenya in refugee camps again, document some sports program. Um, and then working, I was supposed to start working for, with the uh, UNHCR. I was supposed to go to Rwanda end of March, which obviously uh, COVID and lockdown uh, made impossible. Uh, and I also work on development projects for some other NGOs, which mm -hmm. um, for investment banks in particular. So seeing the kind of humanitarian project that they fund 
through through the world and I've been to Bangladesh, to Morocco, Turkey, and Jordan, uh, visiting airports, steel factories, uh, hospitals, shipyards, mm-hmm. uh, all of those things. And that's that's also something that's really interesting to me. So variety. Yes. Another interesting project you were involved in was in 2015, a project that you started um, embedded uh, with the Elite Chamonix Mountain Rescue Service, PGHM, and its Associated Services, Département Aérien de la Gendarmerie, Sécurité Civile et Urgence de l'Hôpital de Salange. You joined in on nearly all the rescue performed and so many lives saved and very hazardous situations handled with an incredible level of care and professionalism. This project that you documented has been published by several magazines. How does it feel to be part of these, to witness these rescues? Uh, it feels amazing. And as a Chamonix local, PGHM is it's guardian angels. Uh, and they're the people you call when things are really bad. Uh, and the people who take you away from potentially really bad situations. Um, so to be able to go there and to actually see how they do things, how they take decisions and to see them in action that was a really it was a huge privilege um and to document this yeah to document these rescues really inspired me so much to see how how good they are really if you if you're gonna get hurt in the mountains anywhere in the world i would recommend doing it here in germany uh that's the best place to get rescued bar none Um, and then as a photographer it's so visual uh, because you have a lot of emotions obviously people um, I don't sometimes there's physical pain which I'm less interested in but when you see people who have gotten really scared uh, and then who get rescued there's so much emotion coming to the surface and that as a photographer I find absolutely fascinating to document Um, and I try to do it in a very respectful way as well and Mm -hmm. always ask people is it okay to show you in a really vulnerable place most people are okay with it but uh, I've had a few uh, a few who refused and then also visually you get to fly in a helicopter and you get to be winched from the helicopter and you get to shoot the helicopter a lot when it's flying and it's it's uh, as somebody who loves flying in general uh, that was really uh, really incredible experience um And then I was also really trying to document not only the peak of the action and the crazy rescue, but also the day-to-day life and to show what uh, what their life is like because it's not just being winched on the west west of Ledru uh, from mm-hmm. a helicopter. It's also a lot of waiting. It's a lot of training. It's a lot of uh, maintenance of the helicopter. It's a lot of paperwork. Uh, all of those things I was trying to document as well. Which is your favorite project? Is it maybe Mont Blanc Lines? Uh, well, yeah, it's always the latest project is the favorite project. <laughs> uh, so Mont Blanc Lines is something that I started during confinement because uh, every single job that I had got cancelled and I, I was trying to find something to do, really. And then I had this idea. Uh, I, I did an aerial photo shoot. I just wanted to get some landscape photo, uh, photos. And then I found that I had some really good high-resolution pictures of some uh, very famous faces like Andreas and Arthur of Droite. And I started drawing on them to show where the lines went, to call my guidebook collection, uh, going through them. And then when I posted them on social media, people loved that. Uh, and they, asked, they kept asking for more, and then they kept asking for prints. So I decided to... I hired a graphic designer to help me turn them into really beautiful posters. Now I have, I think, 11 at the moment that I'm selling on, the, on, on my website. Um, and it's going to be a book hopefully next year. Um, there's a publisher that's very interested in that. 
And it's also um, really great because it gives me an excuse to go flying and to go take more aerial photos, which is wonderful. But it also gets me to dig really deep into any given mountain and to really have to understand where the climbing goes, where the routes go. I understand the northwest of Kandra so much better now than I, than I did before. And also, I get to learn about really obscure routes and obscure faces that I had no idea existed, even really close to sometimes to some really famous routes. So that's maybe that's where the analytic mindset that we we're talking about earlier really comes into play. And it's almost like an investigation, trying to understand where the lines go. And then I take four different guidebooks and they kind of all differ a little bit and they all give different hints. Uh, and I have to sometimes make a decision and I think it makes more this sense because that's the line <laughs> um, but yeah it, it's been really fascinating and then the, the feedback I've been getting from people has been really amazing um, people seem to really love the, the posters so so yeah that's the latest project and the, the one I'm the currently one most passion. excited about yeah we're talking about uh, projects and books and it's mm-hmm. another book that would be your fifth book right yeah if, right. uh, when it comes out you've written four books so far on photography talk, mm-hmm. uh, taking on the essentials of mountain photography organizing your workflow very important yeah. the process also coffee table book of your action and landscape, landscape photographs mm-hmm. uh, remote exposures your first book for uh, photo enthusiasts trackers and climbers who want to bring home better images from their trips tackles the technical and artistic sides of uh, mountain photography and you also quote this book on uh, reddit Yeah. Uh, where you have a course. Also, on your website, you mentioned that you offer punctual mentorship sessions free of charge to mm-hmm. beginner or yeah. photographers. Giving back seems to be very important to you. Why? Um, I think it's important in life to give. I'd be delusional if I thought that I got to where I am in my career if other people hadn't helped me along the way. And it's, to me, it's just a way of paying it forward. And I think it's also a really good way to make uh, make sure that the photo universe, the photo world, is a little bit kinder or a little bit more pleasant to be in, uh, rather than everybody being cutthroat and, and trying to steal assignments from each other. I think it's much nicer if we all play along and if we all... Um, Um, help each other help each other absolutely so to me the mentorship thing especially is just a, a really easy way to give back and to help out people who were who are currently where I was five or ten years ago and there's also the photo world in general is extremely white extremely made and so trying to and I mean I'm poorly placed about it because I'm also white and made <laughs> I'm very aware of that but uh, trying to give priority with the mentorship to people to people of color and to women um, I think is extremely important because we need different uh, perspectives. Gaze, different perspectives uh, different visions uh, than, than the things that have been done so far whether that's in the adventure world or in photography in general uh, so that's my one of the little ways into which I'm trying to end that process I totally agree I'm trying with this podcast also to invite yeah, that's women great. as yeah. well to show their perspective to mm-hmm. offer role models yeah. for women as well so talking about uh, compositions as I've went through your uh, course um, what is the role of colors in your compositions so color is one of the really important tools that one can use to um, to tell a story 
and to to convey a message because photography like any art form is a communication device primarily in my, in my opinion and so color can be used to draw attention to whatever I want people to look at to whatever I want them to understand the story to be and it's, it can be a really powerful way to uh, in a way give hints as to what the story is supposed to be because unlike a film unlike a movie photography is highly suggestive so photography you only have one frame and from everything you have in a frame you're trying to construct a story and every person who looks at the photo is going to construct their own story and if you have something that's very vague with very few hints, then people are going to create crazy stories. Or maybe they just get bored and they want they just like makes no sense and then move move on. Um, but if you want to communicate something specific, then you're going to have to use little hints in the image to uh, direct the story should be x mm-hmm. um, and color is one of the, the really important things that we can use to do that because there is a lot of emotional uh, value to different colors uh, obviously the, the warm colors tend to be more comforting the cold colors tend to be more hostile um, and then when uh, so there's there's that uh, visual language and then there's also the contrast um, and the example I gave uh, earlier before we started recording with that is very very typical if you are in the mountains and you're shooting a skier and the whole environment is blue and white with the snow and maybe a bit of black from rocks, but very monochromatic, and then you add a, a skier who has a bright red or bright yellow jacket, there's going to be tremendous contrast. So we're going to be naturally attracted to the skier. If on top of it, the red or the yellow is something that we find comforting or something that we find energizing, um, that will create a contrast with the hostility of the blue and the white of the um, of the environment, and that can help tell a story of maybe it's if I have somebody in a bright red jacket that's going super fast on the ski, then that's okay. That's a story of extreme, and it's a story of energy, and it's a story of yeah, of energy of action. So yeah, uh, again, color is one of the one of the really important tools for that. And when do you choose to communicate through black and white? Uh, black and white to me is something that uh, you use to simplify uh, images by removing a part of it which is the color information you can direct more attention to the light uh, typically uh, you can direct more attention to texture um, if that's part of how you tell your story and then to me black and white is very useful uh, when telling human stories when telling stories that are about faces that are about facial expressions that are about gazes um so when i have the the ocean peak project is something that i decided to shoot entirely in black and white because i wanted to remove the distraction of of the environment because it really wasn't a story about look how crazy the north sea is or look how beautiful the lofoten islands are it was a story about people teaching each other it was a story about people being out of their comfort zone and dealing with that That's what I was interested in. So that's why, to me, black and white made more sense than color. There is a black and white photo on your website that I like very much. It shows in the distance a boat sailing on a calm sea towards a beam of light. I find that uh, very powerful. What is its story? Um, and it's not... They're not people. They're not human no, expressions not humans. No, no. But, uh, so this one is in black and white because the light made more sense and because it's a very, very simple image. It's just a little boat and an array of light and that's about it. So if it had been in color, it would have had 
um, the color wouldn't have added any information and it would have actually taken away because it would have been distracting. Um, the fact that the, the whole of the boat is red would not have done anything, it would not have added anything to the story that I wanted to tell. And the story is something of peace and serenity. It's a very static image as mm -hmm. well. Uh, and so that was taken in, in 2016 on that Patagonian expedition um, that I was talking about earlier. And if memory serves, it had been a day of really bad weather and we decided to go ashore anyway and to go explore a little bit, but it was raining, snowing, sleeting, super unpleasant. And then all of a sudden there was a little clearing of clouds and just that one beam of light that hit exactly. Uh, actually, it did not hit exactly the boat, but then it ran on the beach so that I would line it up and it, it would be exactly on the boat. Um, and that's what I was trying to, that's the story I wanted to say, to tell there was a story of, of peace and calm and quiet and serenity of having just that one beam of light uh, coming in. On composition rules and recipes, you mentioned in your Reddit photography course that rule breaking should always be there for a reason and only after having understood and mastered the composition rules. Can you develop on that? Uh, yeah, I think that there are rules, so-called composition rules, the most famous being the rule of thirds. Uh, and I think that they're not really rules, they are more like rules of thumb or... Most images following those roles, those guidelines, will usually uh, be better than those who don't. But that doesn't mean that you should always follow them far from it. And I think people should always, I mean, they don't need me to say that, but people should always feel free to break the rules. Uh, and as oftentimes how great art is, is created is by breaking the rules. And cubism makes absolutely no sense if you follow the, uh, the usual rules of painting, uh, for instance. But... I think it's so much better if you have understood and mastered the rules and you really understand what purpose they serve before you start breaking them. Because otherwise you just, you don't really have a clue and you're just playing and sometimes you get lucky and you get great stuff, but it's not something that you can reproduce. It's not something that you can uh, really understand. If you understand why the rules are there and what purpose they serve first, then you can understand when it makes sense to break them and when it makes sense to follow them. That would be the difference between mastery and getting lucky or just exactly. and I'm doing just, it in intuitively. Exactly. Right? And sometimes the understanding is intuitive and you can't actually form it, you can't express it in words, but you still understand it. Um, it doesn't mean you don't always have to be able to explain to an audience to actually understand the rule. It can be something that's completely subconscious. But just, done through, you get to that level of tacit understanding and you should have after, of thousands of images yes and you consume a lot of images too you look at you go to museums and you study the masters and you just spend a ton of time looking at photos not, not just your own and then that's how you start building your own language and you start understanding the language uh, but just to give an example on that the rule of thirds that I've mentioned uh, so it says that it's usually better to put a subject on the third lines in a in a frame rather than centered. But sometimes it does make sense to have a subject be dead center. And that's when you want something to be really static. If you want uh, a composition to feel that, everything, that nothing is moving, then do place your subject dead center. Especially if the subject is looking away. Um, like time stands. Time stands stills, yeah. And I have this, I've been shooting this uh, uh, ad campaign for Chamonix, the Open the Way. I don't know if you've seen those. Yes, um, I do. And uh, all of, not every single image I've shot, but most of them I have. 
Um, and in all of them, the subject is really dead center because the subject is static, looking at the mountain or looking at what he or she is about to do. Um, but it's the idea of it's that time of standing still and looking and anticipating and there's mm-hmm. no movement. And that's why it makes complete sense for the subject to be really dead center. But if you ha- if you don't understand that, then you can try having a static subject where to decide uh, and that's going to be telling a different story. Or you can conversely um, have a picture with lots of action, but you place the subject in the center. And in that kind of, the composition is at odds with the story you want to be telling. Mm-hmm. So to understand that, that very simple thing about composition really helps you make that decision, like what story, do I want to tell a story of staticness or do I want to tell a story of movement? And then that helps you decide what composition to have. Mm-hmm. And this uh, leads me to a question about inspiration. If it's inspiration, a form of self-expression. If so, where does it come from? Um, well, that's a very deep philosophical question. <laughs> but I think part of the inspiration, really, obviously, you cannot be in Chamonix, I think, and be unmoved by the landscapes and by the environment. So part of the inspiration definitely comes from being in those spaces and witnessing the things that I'm witnessing. Uh, at the same time, as something I find absolutely fascinating is take 15 photographers and drop them in front of the exact same subject and you'll get 15 different interpretations of it. And you'll get people focusing on, let's say, tiny person, big mountain. You'll get people focusing on the eyes. You'll get people focusing on the action. Uh, and and some everything is going to be so different, even though it's the same subject. Uh, so there's definitely an element of self-expression um, into um into that which is what makes it so fascinating and um because if all everybody did was just capture the same photos all the time there would be no point in even having professional photographers or having photographers in general do you have um, any recommendations for photography enthusiasts who wish to develop rather visual storytelling skills? You t- we talked a bit uh, before about how do you construct your story, mm-hmm. how you start with the intention and you try to clear yeah. the message. And I, and I asked you if uh, right now, when you take a photo, you know why you're doing it rather than feeling you need to take a photo and then mm-hmm. processing that state and understanding what did I want to say yes. with it. So you're at that stage where you know exactly, you put your hand on the camera and then you pretty much know what you're trying to convey. Usually, yes. Um, but that's something that has come from years of doing this and shooting hundreds of thousands of images. Uh, and then also spending the time afterwards in post-processing and in editing, looking at the images and trying to understand why what compelled me to take that picture. And that also informs how do I want to process this image to help tell that story and help convey that message. Um, I think it's one of the most important things you can do as a as a budding photographer, as somebody who wants to improve, is to try to be a bit more conscious about that. Whether that's as you do it or more commonly afterwards looking back on it. And then I can help inform you in the future of having a little bit more control, uh, a little bit more thinking about what you're about to shoot. Just like mm-hmm. I was saying earlier, if you decide you want to shoot something in movement, then maybe don't center the subject. A very simple thing. But if you have enough visual literacy uh, to really understand that, uh, because you have done that mistake 50 times, 
and another 50 times you've done, you've gotten it right and you've kind of thought about it enough that you realize, oh, okay, so that makes sense like that. Um, then that can make, help make you a much better photographer. So some an exercise that I sometimes give in, give in, in workshops is to go through a shoot and to look at every image, uh, not just the best ones, but to look at every image and for each ask, why did I take this picture? Like at the time, what was I thinking? And sometimes mm-hmm. it's just, it's pretty, which, okay, mm-hmm. that, that's that's a good enough reason of, uh, oftentimes. But those images, you know, maybe you'll put them on Instagram, but they're not going to be the lasting ones. Um, and the ones, and especially the ones that have special meaning to ones that are really great or good photos, like why... Why, why did I want to shoot that? What was it in that scene that prompted me to, to take the camera out and shoot that? Um, so mm-hmm. yeah, that's, that's an exercise that I think having to, trying to do that consciously and trying to really formulate it and to express it in words is a really interesting experience and I encourage everybody to try it. So uh, self-knowledge. Self-knowledge, absolutely. Process. Yeah. How about sharing your work as a learning process? How do you handle potential criticism? Uh, it depends on the criticism. I think if it's criticism that is well-intentioned and that is constructive, then it's super valuable. And uh, I don't... I mean, it feels great to have people tell me, oh, amazing, such great work, uh, but it doesn't help me improve. It doesn't help me get better. Whereas when I have people whose opinion I respect, who tell me, um, this is good, but that's not working, or like this could have been better, or why didn't you do this instead? That is super valuable and something I really try to listen to, even though it's sometimes not um, not very pleasant to hear. Uh, but there's been a few times where I've reached out to people whose opinions I really value, one of them being the photo editor at National Geographic, and she reviewed my work and then she pointed out things that were missing and things that I could have definitely done better, or things that I was good at, but things I was not so good at. And that, to me, that's something I've kept with me, even though it was many, many years ago. And that's been so much more valuable than if she had come to, to my work and, and said, oh, that's great. Yeah, great work. We'll, we'll let you know if we need uh, to hire you someday. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would have been great to hear. That would have been great for my ego and my pride. But that would not have helped me become a better photographer. Thank you, Alex, for your time. I know you're short on time. <laughs> yes, I, we appreciate. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> listening to Transylvania Mountain Festival podcast with Anka Berlo. If you want to know more about the event, check out www.transylvaniamountainfestival.ro where you can also enter this year's mountain photography competition. Also, if you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast and give us a rating. It really helps. <laughs>